This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 138 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A couple of quick notes. First one is iOS Remote Conf is coming up in April. Uh, Call for Proposals is going to be open probably till sometime in March or end of February. So if you would like to speak, go to iosremoteconf.com and submit a talk. I plan to ask all of our current past panelists and several of our past guests, but I usually have about half the conference open. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. Uh, Also of note, in February, we're doing Freelance Remote Conf. All of the speaking spots on that are pretty much full, but you can go sign up. So if you're interested in that, then go check it out. Uh, The other item of note is that I have a new text-in number that you can use to get on our list. So if you would like to get the top 10 uh, downloaded episodes of iFreaks, you can do that. Text in iFreaks to 7656-CODING. In numbers, that's 7656263464. And if you text the word in iFreaks, then it'll ask you for your email address, and then you can get on the the list where you'll get notified of those 10 episodes. And then you'll also get notified about episodes going forward in your email. So then you can find all the links to all of our picks and all the stuff that we uh, discuss and things like that. So anyway, that was a long-winded intro. Let's go ahead and talk about Swift being open source. Now, this was something that Andrew mentioned, and I thought it was interesting that we hadn't talked about it yet. When did they announce that it was open source? I remember hearing the announcement. It was toward the end of last year, but I don't remember exactly when. Uh, December 5th, maybe? 4th or 5th? Something like that. Like the first week of December 2015. So it's been just about a month ago. Yeah, in fact, uh, I just did a quick uh, Google search. Uh, The post at developer.apple.com is it says december 3rd swift is now open source today apple launched the open source swift community so this is really interesting apple it seems like they they kind of like to have their own little playground and this kind of opens up the playground to a lot more people um that was something that i thought was interesting are, are there reasons why you you guys think that they might have wanted to open source swift my own thinking on this, I don't really know for sure, um, except that there there have been a few examples of, of Apple open sourcing things with pretty good success. Uh, I think the biggest one of those is WebKit, which mm. kind of they, they that, that was a existing open source project that they forked um, from KDE's uh, rendering engine. But anyway, that WebKit, you know, has been a big success that powers the browsers, the most popular browsers in the world now, including um, Chrome, Safari, and the browsers, the built-in browsers on both iOS and Android. But I, I think really my guess is that it was sort of a the team, the Swift team wanted to open source it, you know, for whatever their reasons are. I think it was motivated by their desire to do that. Does it being open source benefit Apple, though? 
I mean, it seems like it would in the sense that they can get more brilliant minds contributing to the language. People can do more things with Swift on other platforms. But I mean, overall, those seems like benefits to the Swift ecosystem. Do those directly benefit Apple as well? Well, I think there are two two big benefits to Apple, really. One one is that they do get uh, outside contribution and more more people working on making Swift good and on implementing features and on sort of um, charting the direction of the language. And, and they're already doing that. And I'd like to talk more about that. But then as far as um, Swift on other platforms goes, I think Apple having a language that they sort of essentially control, at least they're setting, you know, they're setting the, the agenda for it and they're setting the future vision for it. Having that language become popular outside of Apple's own platforms is is definitely a, a good thing for Apple. It makes it so that there's there will likely be a wider pool of people who can develop for Apple's platforms. And it also, I think, will make it so that existing Apple platform developers can do more. So like I'm excited to possibly be able to write web apps, web backend apps in Swift without having to learn another language that I, you know, don't use for, don't already use for something. So I, I think both of those things can be beneficial to Apple. Yeah. Somebody's going to write a web server in Swift and then they're going to come up with Swift on Swales. Yeah, somebody already, there, there are actually a few that are already out there, but I think the one that's gotten the most press is called Perfect. Oh, there's already one out there. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's funny because Perfect, you know, I've heard, I've seen people complaining about the name, like it's typical Apple, arrogant name or whatever, but, <laughs> but I, I don't know how they came up with the name, but it actually looks pretty cool. Well, you know what they say about all the other web servers, right? None of them are perfect. Yeah, well, now we have one. I'm sure somebody left that joke somewhere. Anyway, so so yeah, so did you say you had run this on Linux? Well, so Apple has downloadable packages for, for Linux, for Ubuntu, and I downloaded that like the first day it was out, and that was fun. It was really easy to get going with, but one thing I, I've been excited about since Apple announced that Swift would be open sourced back in uh, back in the summer at WWDC was the, the possibility of running Swift on a Raspberry Pi or, you know, similar kind of cheap little almost embedded device like that, and so... It didn't run out of the box. The open source release would not build on on an ARM processor, which is what the Raspberry Pi uses. But pretty quickly, some people got it going, and I took advantage of that and got it running on my Raspberry Pi and tweeted about it. And surprisingly, was surprised at the reaction. I got retweeted by everybody under the sun, including the, the Swift Twitter account and Chris Latner. So that was kind of cool. So are you running Swift apps on the Raspberry Pi? Or are you actually having the compiler run? On the Raspberry Pi, what's what's involved with that? Well, both the compiler is running on the Raspberry Pi, so you could actually use you could use the Raspberry Pi as your development machine, which is maybe um, not ideal. It's pretty slow, and you know, but uh, but it's certainly possible. But the compiler running there means that you can compile your Swift to run on the Raspberry Pi, and that's pretty cool to me because then you can write, you know, like there's a lot of people that are using the Raspberry Pi as the brains of robots or for home automation or all kinds of different stuff and being able to do that those things in Swift is pretty appealing to me. Okay. So I mean Raspberry Pi in the embedded world is still pretty beefy. Our you know when I was doing embedded work, you know, we ran code on device that you just wouldn't run a compiler on. Are people doing any like cross compilation where you can compile it on your desktop but run it for, you know, actually run the app on a different a lower level uh, machine? Um, I, I've seen some people talking about wanting to get that set up. I have not seen anyone that's actually got a cross compiler set up. 
I mean, the the guy who got Swift the Swift compiler to build for the Raspberry Pi, uh, specifically for the Raspberry Pi One, he was kind of talking about wanting to do that because it took days to build the compiler on a Raspberry Pi, which is how he had to do it. Oh they're wow, pretty slow. So, uh, so I think people are working on it, but nobody has gotten it going yet, is my understanding anyway. Okay. I mean, it are, it's sort of already exists, right? Because the Swift compiler running on your Mac compiles Swift for the ARM in your in your iOS device, but uh, the, the open open source Swift right now, as far as I know, does not support um, iOS devices as a target. Right on. Okay. Huh. That's really interesting. So, what what are the benefits of running, you know, Swift on as an embedded program? Well, for me personally, it's that I already know Swift and I don't have to learn, you know, C plus plus or Python. A lot of people use Python on a Raspberry Pi mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but I, you know, I think Apple's point of view is that Swift is just just on its own merits, not just because it's part of the you know developer ecosystem around Apple, but just on its own merits. I think they think it's a really good language and they want people to use it for all kinds of things. And you know, I tend to agree. All languages have strengths and weaknesses, but I think Swift's a pretty nice language to work in. Yeah, definitely. When you look at the different languages you can use for embedded work, low-level stuff, you know, C++, C, that's been the gold standard for a long time. You know, Python, you know, that's definitely an option. People, you know, consider using Go, you know, it's got more modern language features like like a Python, but it's, you know, it's, it's compiled. And Swift fits in there kind of nicely. And one thing that I found intriguing about Swift for, say, in robotics is that unlike Go, like, you're, it's not a garbage collected language, you know, we've got arc, so we can predict when things will get cleaned up, which makes it nice. So if you got robotics with you know real time component, like if you're using some garbage collected language like Go, you don't know when the garbage collector is going to fire off. You just don't have control over it. It happens when it happens. And usually when it's when you really don't want it to happen and cause problems. But with Swift, you have a little more control. So I think it's a really intriguing language for you know, lower level programming. Plus, you get a lot of the kind of niceties of a more modern language versus doing things in C. Well, and there's there's no reason why, I mean, some of the other popular uh, applications for programming languages like web development or, you know, it already does desktop and mobile development, you know, and then we're talking about embedded. Um, but there's no reason why you couldn't do any and all of that with Swift. There's There's nothing in there that precludes those. Yeah, I think Swift is a good general purpose language. It just, it's been mobile for the year and a half it's been a thing. Now, one thing that was interesting, uh, Andrew, that you said was that uh, this Swift is not the Swift, or I guess you can't build it as a target for iOS. Is that because it's a closed system that already runs Swift on its runtime, or is this a different Swift? It's not a different Swift. I I don't really know. Uh, I haven't really thought deeply about this, but I think basically the end result is it doesn't really matter because why do you care about using the open source Swift compiler when you've already got Xcode that can build Swift for an iOS device, right? So Unless you're Richard Stallman. Well, yeah, but if you're Richard Stallman, you would no sooner uh, you know own an iPhone than fly to the moon. So yeah, pretty yeah, pretty sure he doesn't have an iPhone. Good point. <laughs> I, I guess the other question that I have though is if it's open source, is there any reason why you couldn't uh, build apps in Swift that run on something like an Android device? I mean, we see all this cr- cross-platform stuff with uh, different JavaScript systems. You know, be it Native Script, React Native, or PhoneGap. You know, could you conceivably write a, an app that runs on both in Swift? 
Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know if anyone's actually gotten the Swift compiler to um create I or to create and Android executables yet, but I'm I, I've seen people ch- you know chattering about it, and I guarantee that somebody's gonna do that. And after all, Android is you know fundamentally is Linux, so I'm sure it's quite doable. I guess that's true. I didn't really think about that. But all those apps are written in Java, so would it have to compile to uh, Java bytecode? No, you normally use Android or Java for Android development, but they also you can also do C and C plus plus. Oh, okay. For for Android anyway. So, but, so LLVM compiled stuff could conceivably compile something that will run. Yeah, right. And there's no restriction on Google's part. There used to be a restriction by Apple that you could not uh, for a little while you couldn't write an iOS app that was compiled from a language other than Objective C C or C plus plus. There was a big outcry and they got rid of that, but. I don't think Android has ever had that kind of restriction. So I'm, I'm sure it's coming. And I think that's pretty cool because then instead of writing your common denominator cross platform libraries in C or C++ like you have to do now, uh, Swift becomes viable for that. And that's pretty nice. And again, that's a benefit to Apple, right? Cause that means people are going to develop for iOS first or have an even better reason to. Yep. So Chuck, you raised a good point about having a cross-platform approach, maybe similar to like a you know, the, the Xamarin with C Sharp, doing that with Swift. One problem, and I'm not sure exactly what. So, what is actually included in the in the Swift uh, open source? Are any of the like the foundation classes, any of the you know, UI kit things that we're used to using? Is that any of that available, or are we on our own if we want to write the UI stuff? I thought we should talk about that. I thought just covering what all is covered by open source Swift would be good. Um, so open source Swift consists of the Swift compiler, obviously, uh, and that also includes the Swift REPL and uh, LLDB. And of course, the Swift compiler is built, built on LLVM. So, um, And then it it also includes the Swift standard library. But something that was kind of surprising to a lot of people is that I mean I had heard people talking about this before the open source release, just saying, just acting like it was a foregone conclusion that Foundation would not be available. Foundation, of course, being an Objective C library, people just assumed that would not be part of it. But actually, part of the open source release is a re-implementation of Foundation in Swift, and it's open source. So that's pretty cool because that means that a lot of those. Uh, APIs that not not the not the not UI kit or app kit, but the low level APIs that are in Foundation um, that are really useful for doing all kinds of stuff are part of the Swift open source release. Oh, uh, the wow. cap, yeah, so that's to me that's a pretty big deal. It means that you're not stuck either writing stuff with the Swift standard library, which is pretty limited. You know, it's like arrays and strings and dictionaries and sort of low level operations on those, but you know nothing beyond that. But no, we're getting the, you know, the threading code and the like NS operation and networking code and XML parsing and JSON parsing and all that kind of stuff that's in foundation. So that's pretty cool. Now, the caveat is that if you go look at foundation right now, the open source foundation, it's pretty unfinished. There's a lot of stuff that's just stubbed out and then, you know, marked as unimplemented. So, you know, obviously this is all just a work in progress and, and Apple actually open source things fairly early in the development cycle because they wanted the community to be involved. But it also means that there's certainly a chance for people to jump in and contribute. So when you get to things like operations and networking, if that's included in, in the open source, wouldn't that have to be re-implemented for diff- different architectures? Yeah, so they're they're implementing it on top of core foundation. 
because Core Foundation is already an existing, partly open source um, C library, and I think they're they I don't know for sure, but they may be open sourcing more of that. Um, I'm not exactly sure what's already there. I think some stuff already runs on Windows, which may mean that they've already um, abstracted it fairly well because they're using it in iTunes, for example. And I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of speculating here, but I'm sure there's some work that needs to be done so that uh, you know for for support for both Linux and and Mac and hopefully in the future other platforms but but the you know that they've promised that Swift Foundation will they're they're going to support OS 10 and Linux as targets and then of course they'll accept contributions to support other platforms um also included in the open source release is something that uh was nobody knew anything about until until the big announcement which is the Swift package manager and i think that's pretty exciting um that's sort of like Apple's answer to Cocoa Pods, or mm-hmm. you, you might say the Swift version of Ruby Gems, or you know NPM for Node, or, or or whatever. It's it's a package manager for Swift, and it's the first time there has been a, an officially supported uh, app provided package manager for Objective C or Swift. And interestingly, they hired Max Howell, who wrote Homebrew, and um, Matt Thompson, who everybody knows, to work on the package manager, which is pretty cool. So it's people that we already sort of know and have a really strong background in open source. And I think it's pretty cool that they're the ones working on it along with other people that are on the team. Do you see the package manager? You mentioned that it's, it's like CocoaPods. Do you see this at all taking over uh, some of the stuff that winds up in CocoaPods? Yeah, actually they're obsoleting it. (laughs) The guys behind, I think both CocoaPods and Carthage guys said definitely the CocoaPods guys said that, they are perfectly happy to have CocoaPods be obsoleted by the Swift package manager. Basically, they said they only ever, I mean, th- th- if they didn't say this, they sort of have implied that they only ever really wrote CocoaPods because there was no Apple provided mm. solution to that problem. And so they're happy to not have to, you know, do that on their own now. And Apple can, can have a real one. And, um, and I, I've actually seen some back and forth on the mailing list for, for the Swift package manager between guys from CocoaPods and the and the and the Apple team working on the package manager sort of sharing notes and helping each other and that's pretty cool. So is the Swift package manager available now? Could we use it in our apps? It's not integrated into Xcode, so that makes it a little hard to use for, you know, working on iOS app development or something, but um, but it is available now. Uh, it's quite alpha quality. It's in definitely unfinished and they're very upfront about that. But the basics work. There's there, you can just tell that there are a lot of features on the roadmap that they want to implement that are not implemented yet, and I'm sure there are bugs and stuff. But I, I actually spent a few hours this week um, working on getting a, a library that I've written to work with the package manager, so I sort of figured out how it works, and it's pretty cool, and it, it's actually really easy to use, and I think pretty nicely done. So how does it compare to CocoaPods or Carthage? Carthage relies so much on Xcode, you know, for, so, so Carthage's whole thing is you don't have to do anything to support Carthage as long as you've got an Xcode project that builds a framework. And so in some sense, there's a little bit of a difference in philosophy there, but, uh, compared to, to compared to CocoaPods, I think it was refreshingly simple and easy to get going with. In particular, to create a package, all you have to do is, um, make sure you put your sources in a, in a folder called sources. And then you, the equivalent of a pod spec is, is the package manifest file. And that, that is actually a Swift file in the Swift package manager. So you write your package man or your package manifest or, or your package spec in Swift or in some subset of Swift anyway. 
And you don't actually have to give it very much information before you've got a package up and running. In fact, I think you can almost leave it blank, except maybe having to give it a name. And then you just run Swift build, and it will build your package. And then if you want to use that package in an app, the difference between a package and an app for the Swift package manager is really simple. It's just that if your project has a file called main.swift, then the package manager knows that it's a, an app instead of a library. Um, but you can declare dependencies in your in your package file and then run Swift build, and the package manager will go out and fetch the, the dependencies and build them and link with them. So it all works quite nicely. But again, it's not at all right now. It's just a command line thing, and there's no support for Xcode projects and no support in Xcode for it. But I, I assume that that's coming. Yeah, I'm kind of digging through this a little bit. So uh, you're, you're saying that it's not in Xcode and it's not built in or anything. So I'm assuming then that if you want to put this on your Mac, then on Linux, I'm, I'm definitely assuming that you're going to have to you know, build it on, on your Linux machine. It sounds like there might be some binary packages that you can get through apt or something, but for your Mac, do you still have to go download it and install it? Yeah, right now, uh, right now you have to go download and install it. It's really easy though. You download a, an installer file and run it and that's that. And the same, same is true for Linux, assuming you're using Ubuntu 14.04, 15.05 or whatever the 15.06, whatever the newer release is. For other platforms, you know, or like, or other distributions of Linux, you do have to, to build it. And it's not, yeah, that can be easy or hard depending, but. Right. The other thing that I'm wondering though is, um, it, it looks like they, in, on swift.org, it also says that it includes, maybe it was on the announcement, uh, it included, uh, something else that would help with IDE integration. Does it, so does this mean that they may be moving away from or opening things up with Xcode? I, I I know what you're talking about. I read that to mean that they're basically they're saying that they are designing the Swift package manager with with it in mind that people will want to integrate it into an IDE so that an IDE can use the package manager. Uh-huh. Um, and further, I think that is pretty clear indication that they're writing it for the one IDE that they care about, which is Xcode. And, you know, they haven't said so officially, but I would be kind of surprised if Xcode does not include support for the package manager in, you know, the next major update or whatever. One thing about open source Swift that I think is really interesting and, and unique for Apple is that they, that it's not, it's not a fake open source project. And by fake, I mean like a lot of people probably don't even realize this, but Objective C is open source and has been for a long time and continues to be, but it, like the Objective C runtime, Apple's Objective C runtime is open source, but they just dump the source code every so often. Uh, you know, a new version of OS 10 will come out, and six months later, they'll finally get around to uploading a zip file of all the source. And you know, you, there's no way to contribute to it. There's no way to file bugs against it openly. There's no way to fork it and, and suggest changes or anything like that. It's just sort of like, here's the source. Do what you want to do with it. With Swift, they're really going all in on open source. The whole thing is hosted on GitHub, and not only is it on GitHub, the, the GitHub version is like the, the real version of it. So even Apple engineers doing their normal work on it are doing that development on GitHub in the open. They're accepting pull requests from the community. They're accepting um, bug reports from the community that are public bug reports. There's a really active bunch of mailing lists for discussing future evolution of the language and, you know, proposals for changes and all that. And 
Um, they've already started, they've already accepted, uh, some proposals that came from outside Apple for changes to, to the language. And to me, that's, that's pretty cool change for Apple and sort of an interesting development. And I don't remember where I was going with that, but anyway, on its own, it's pretty cool. No, it's definitely nice to see them play in the open source ecosystem, you know, using GitHub. And I, I forget the name of the person developer that had the pull request accepted by Apple. It's probably an, it's probably an, an, one of the picks, but it's cool to see that. Yeah, that was Erica Saden. I hope I'm saying her last name right. She was the first person to get a to get a proposal um, accepted, and, and as I recall, her proposal was to remove the the C style syntax for for loops from the language. Anyway, she got that accepted, but I, I think there have been a few others since then, um, and they've actually merged in hundreds of pull requests. Although most of those are like fixing typos in documentation and shouldn't say silly stuff because it's important, but it was obviously just, hey, I want to get a contribution in, so I'm going to find the quickest, easiest thing I can do. Mm-hmm. That'll that'll settle down, though, right? It'll kind of mature, and that, that was all sort of like first post when a new slash dot story is posted or something. So I keep looking at this, and I, I definitely see some upsides for Apple. Are there any downsides to Apple open sourcing this for them or for the community? Well, those pull requests I talked about, strike me as somewhat of a downside it was you know i felt a little bad for the for the swift team when within hours of opening the whole thing up they were just under a deluge of of pull requests and they're having to manage those right they're having to triage them and figure out which ones are good and which ones are bad and test them and all that stuff and and you know that's a that's certainly a administrative burden that they didn't really have before i also think that it's in some ways, maybe not the not the people on the Swift team, but for Apple as a whole, it's a might be a bit of a hard change to be making changes and you know working on new features and things like that out in the open because they've traditionally been so secretive about everything and they they still are secretive about their products. But it used to be that we had no idea what was coming in as far as development tools and you know language changes until we got to WWDC and here they are. So this this is kind of a I don't know, might be a little hard for them, but I'm not really sure I know of other downsides. I, I What do you guys think? I mean, the, the real, I think, danger that anyone else is going to see in this is just if they, you know, they, they can't put any trade secrets into Swift because it's open source. But I don't see why they would necessarily need to. I mean, you can put all of that into the runtime that you have on your, you know, or into your other libraries that get run against your devices. And so you wouldn't have to. Right, I think the special sauce has always gone in, uh, you know, AppKit and UIKit yeah. and Core Data and whatever else. And like I said, Objective C has actually been open source forever, so not actually that's not actually a new thing. Yep. So we talked a little bit about the perfect library, but I'm I'm curious on what are the benefits of Swift as a server side language. We talked a little bit about embedded and desktop that type of stuff. Have you, have you looked at the library at all? Does it, do you know how it maps to, you know, some of the other paradigms like a Ruby on Rails or like a, like a node thing? Do you know how it compares to any of those? I'm afraid I haven't really looked at the web um, frameworks that are out there, particularly perfect, but there are some other ones too. And besides that, the only other web development framework that I have any real experience with at all is node, but I don't know, just, off the top of my head, it seems like there are some pretty nice features in Swift that will be good for that stuff. Uh, one thing I didn't mention before is that libdispatch, which is the name of the library that 
implements Grand Central Dispatch is also part of the Swift open source release. I've had a hard time figuring out exactly what that means because libdispatch has actually been open source since forever, since it came out. But there's some, I think, I think the deal is Apple themselves are uh, supporting it on Linux, including the Swift enhancements or whatever for it, the Swift refinements. So what distributions of Linux are, are supported? Is this- well, it's only Ubuntu that Apple is officially supporting with their own packages, but yeah, but if you can get all the dependencies on your, on your distribution of Linux, it looks like it just compiles. Yeah, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a major issue. I think yeah. that's Apple saying just to keep our lives easy, we're going to restrict it to this one most popular distribution. But I I haven't really spent a lot of time worrying about it because that's the only distribution I run. But um, I have a feeling people have already gotten it running on other distributions. Yeah, I think it's only a matter of time before they have basically, you know, somebody goes in and builds all the right make targets and then packages them up so that you can just get the binaries. I actually just realized, I know that, uh, what's his name? I think I saw some pull requests from Landon Fuller about adding support for free BSD. So that's at least one, not, it's not a Linux distribution, but another OS that somebody's worked on. Yeah, but free BSD or open BSD. Well, what, anyway, the BSD core is what Mac OS is built on. So it shouldn't be a terrible stretch. Yeah, kind kind of. That's only kind of true. But yeah, he uh, it didn't seem like it was a major ordeal to get that working. You know, yep. it was like a few a few changes here and there. So the other thing that I'm wondering about is as Swift maybe moves into some of these other areas of programming. You know, so you have the server side and uh, you have you know whatever else. Are are those going to be covered as part of Apple's? You know, when they I I don't really expect too strongly to see much in the world of WWDC on open source contributions to Swift that don't involve Apple's products. But, you know, are we going to start to see a wider Swift community that isn't centered around Apple? And are we going to see Apple support some of those other efforts? I think you're right that Apple's main concern, at least for the effort they're putting in, is going to be to support their platforms. You know, at some point, they're not going to spend a lot of time worrying about whether it works great to develop for Android, right? But that said, I think that they do hope that it really gains wide adoption because they've said that publicly. There have been, right around the time the open source release happened, Craig Federighi, who is the, I don't remember his exact title, but he's essentially the executive at Apple that's in charge of their software, including iOS and OS X. He sort of made the rounds and you know did a few interviews for tech websites, and he was actually on an ep- a episode of John Gruber's podcast, talk show. And he said that they, they want Swift to be uh, not just their language for the next 20 years, but the language, you know, essentially the language for the next 20 years, like the language that people sort of default to learning when they're trying to decide what programming language to learn. Kind of like he, what Java was in the 80s or 90s. Yeah. And what, and probably what C was before that. Yeah. And I, and, and, you know, he even mentioned like they would love to see Swift be used as a teaching language in in high schools and universities. And, you know, personally, I I don't really know whether I'm certainly not an expert on teaching programming languages, but I think that, you know, I think that's just interesting that they have that perspective, assuming it's sincere. Yeah. It's it's, it's a nice sentiment, but to actually get that to happen, you need very wide adoption. You know, you look at the perfect website, you know, it runs on Ubuntu, you know, Apple supports Ubuntu, you know, it's not ubiquitous and is Apple going to make it ubiquitous? Probably not. It, you know, that's, that's going to come from the community. 
And, you know, do they get enough critical mass to actually make it a dominant language in these different paradigms? You know, it's still very early, so it still could happen. But yeah, I think that's a whole lot of work. Right. I think it's kind of anyone's guess. I think the interesting thing is that Apple seems to want that to happen. But whether it will actually happen or not is really a, a whole other question. You know, I mean, I certainly don't know how to predict that. But I also do think, though, that, you know, the reaction I've seen to Swift from outside of the Apple development community has mostly been positive. People that don't have anything to do with developing for iOS or Mac already uh, that check out Swift seem to think it's pretty cool. And some of the other languages that might sort of compete with it, which I think are, you know, I don't know, Go and Rust and Mm -hmm. some of those, maybe don't have, Go might be an exception, although, because Go is backed by Google, but because it's not the development language for Android, I don't think it's got the same sort of, you know, big company with a, with an existing big pool of developers that are making their, their living writing in this language. And Swift sort of has that built in from the very beginning. So I think that's a, you know, a big big plus, but at the same time, that doesn't really directly help it expand beyond Apple. And I don't know. Of course, you you kind of, you know, you compared it a little bit to these other languages, which is something that we really haven't done with Swift up till now. I mean, we've compared it to Objective-C, and that's more or less it, because it was only really available in those same areas where you were going to be using Objective-C. So I'm really curious also to see as things develop, how it performs relative to these other languages. So, you know, it, it has a lib dispatch. I think that was what it was called. And uh, some of these other things that allow it to do concurrent work. And so it'll be really interesting to see how it compares now to go for concurrency or, um, you know, some of the other popular things with Node.js or, or Ruby with uh, web development perfect or some of these other systems that are out there, especially given its nature as a language that's not strictly OO or strictly functional, but is kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on, on go or rust. I don't think Apple or anyone really sees Swift as competing with, with Ruby so much considering Ruby's basically 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think Swift is essentially a generation newer than Ruby and it's also a yes. compiled language. And, but in, in, in any case, uh, I think, you know, my own impression and what I gather from reading what a lot of other people are saying is that Swift is a really pragmatic language. So it's not like Haskell where it's, you know, kind of this high minded theoretical language. They wrote it for real people that are writing real programs, real applications, you know, that are actually going to ship and, you know, for better or for worse, right? There are some downsides to that, but it makes it so that it's actually quite flexible and has some nice things going for it. One other thing that I saw on the Swift.org page that I liked was uh, the REPL debugger stuff. That looked really fascinating as well. And it's always nice when you have a language, whether it's compiled or interpreted, when you have a REPL that you can go play with. So you can you can throw stuff in there. You can goof around with it. Uh, it's also nice when it does have the debugging features built into it. Yeah, it's just... It's a lot of, it's, it's really nice to be able to just kind of go and fiddle with it without a whole lot of overhead. I mean, even sandboxes or playgrounds or whatever they called them for Swift before in Xcode or whatever, it, it's still, there was a certain level of you have to install Xcode and fire it up and blah, 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 blah. Where with this, once you have open source Swift installed, you can actually just fire up the REPL and go for it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. One one of the big features of Swift when Swift very first was announced was playgrounds in Xcode. And and playgrounds are not part of the open source release. Right. 
should be clear about that. But a rep, a REPL is kind of, you know, kind of gets you partway there, right? You can just open up the REPL and start, uh, start typing and, and see what your code does as you're typing it. So that's pretty cool. Um, another thing that, uh, Swift is, Swift has always been usable for on OS 10, but now presumably would be, um, usable for on Linux and, and other platforms that end up supported is you can essentially use it as a shell scripting language. So you can write, you know, where you would write a script in, in Perl or, or Python or Bash or something, you can actually write a lot of those in Swift, which is pretty cool, even though it's compiled. I also realized that I use some jargon and I want to go back and define it. Uh, a REPL. I don't remember what it stands for, but uh, essentially it's a place where you can uh, type in and execute live code. Yeah, read, on the command line. read evaluate, print, and like loop. Okay, yeah. Type code in and see what it does, see what it does immediately instead of having to hit, you know, compile and run and wait. It's yeah. pretty cool. It's not a new thing with Swift. There are REPLs for lots of other languages. Yeah. So anything else that we should look at here with this before we go to picks? Everybody go upvote Andrew's zillion pull requests against the Swift source code. Yeah, I actually have zero right now, but I'm hoping to change that at some point. And I think I'll probably uh, try to do a little work on the package manager because that seems to be something that's useful to me. And, you know, it's small and simple enough. Not that it's small and simple, but it's certainly simpler than the compiler for me to understand. Mm-hmm. I'd like to submit at least something to it. We'll see if I find time, though. Yep. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Jane, do you have some picks for us? Sure, I've got one pick. And this might have been a pick with the previous guest, Paul Cantrell. Uh, at least this is how I found out about this this blog post. If you're dealing with you know, protocol extensions in Swift, that's the new um, the new cool thing to do. You know, classes are so old school. It's all protocol extensions now uh, with your default implementations. So a team I've been working with has drank the Kool-Aid, and we've been testing out this way of development. And I've been trying to implement what they've been doing and write unit tests around it. And I ran into a lot of problems. And a lot of it centered around the differences between the dynamic and the static dispatch. So if you create a class and you want to test it, mock it out, we've always been subclassing and overriding. And going on our way, we can observe things and make sure things are happening like we want to. With the default extensions, with the default implementations of the protocol extensions, that becomes problematic. And why is very well explained in this article of the ghost of Swift bugs future by Alexandros Salazar. So if you haven't read this thoroughly and you're writing protocol extensions, you really need to. All right, Andrew, what are your picks? See, I've got two sort of three. One of them is a repeat, a repeat pick, but I'll pick it again. Um, My first pick is actually a blog post that I, that I wrote um, that I mentioned earlier about how to get Swift running on your raspberry Pi. I should, you know, not take too much credit. I didn't really do anything hard to get this working. I just followed some other people's instructions, got it working, and then wrote a blog post about the exact steps that you need to take if you want to run Swift on your, to get, want to get the Swift compiler working on your Raspberry Pi so that you can write Swift apps on Raspberry Pi. You know, if you're interested in that and you have a Raspberry Pi, go check out my instructions. Um, my second pick is called Swift Sandbox. I think I have not picked this before. It's, it's actually a, it's a weekly newsletter about Swift, and um, I've been signed up for this, I think, since the first issue. And uh, it's just, you know, it's kind of like iOS Dev Weekly, similar sort of idea, but it's all about Swift. And um, I've I've found some pretty cool stuff that has actually been useful to me from this newsletter, including some stuff about the Swift package manager that has been helpful just in the last week. So it's definitely worth 
signing up for if you're writing Swift and, you know, want to learn, learn new things and see what other people are saying and, and doing with the language. Um, and then my third pick, which I think is a repeat, is also called Swift Sandbox. So two Swift Sandbox picks, but it's something completely different. It's an actual Swift Sandbox that IBM put up. Probably everybody's already seen it, um, but it's pretty cool. It's it's essentially an on. It's not quite a REPL, but it's an online Swift compiler where you type Swift in your browser and you can hit run and uh, see the output. And, and it's all powered by Swift running on Linux at you know on IBM servers. So it's pretty cool. And they've got some cool examples, including um, fairly sophisticated stuff, including a server, a little web server that's written in Swift. That's you know not a few hundred lines of code, but pretty cool. So those are my picks. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit long-winded with my picks. So I don't know if I've talked too much about it on the show. I have definitely talked about it at length on the Freelancer Show, if you want to go check that out. It should come out about the same time as this one, so this week or last week. But at the end of each year, starting about mid-November, I start making goals uh, for the next year. And uh, I go through this process where I kind of say, okay, well, where do I want to get to someday? You know, so some of them are pretty vague, like I want to go to heaven someday, or I want to um, be able to do this or that someday. And then, you know, it's like, okay, well, in order to get there, what do I have? Where do I have to be in five years? And I usually try and make those five year goals a little bit ambitious. Uh, then where do I have to be in one year to make it to the five year or to be well on my way? And then I do nine, 90 days, et cetera, et cetera. Well, during the process of setting those goals, we had a baby, as you heard on the show. And then uh, my dad had open heart surgery, and then he came home from the hospital and had a bunch of um, – He basically, he fell down. And so I wound up spending the night one night, um, and then I wound up taking him to dialysis because he also has kidney failure. Um, he had a hip surgery go wrong a few years ago because he's got hip problems. Uh, osteoarthritis. I mean, he's got all this whole host of health problems. And while I was talking to him, I realized that I'm heading down the same road. I'm just 25 years behind. So uh, I decided that this year I'm going to get my health in order and then I just need to keep it in order. So uh, essentially, I'm going to lose 40 pounds this year and I'm just going to be- briefly pick some of the things that I'm going to be using during this process in order to do that. And it's funny because I was like hyper-focused on my business when I started setting the goals. And by the time I was done, I have a major business goal and a major uh, health goal is basically where I'm at. So when I work out, uh, I've been tracking it with the Nike running. I think it's Nike Plus running app on my iPhone. So when I go for a run, I just start it. And when I'm done, I stop it and it tells me how far I went. It works on the track at the gym so I can run in circles and it still tells me that I went... Uh, three miles or however far I went. I've also been using the 10K app, run 10K app on the iPhone. They have a run 5K app if you're interested in that. It's very similar to Couch 5K. And uh, I'm really liking that. So I set that up and, and it tells me to run and stuff too. It doesn't track distance as well, which is why I use both. I've also, I've got my Pebble Time Steel watch and I've mentioned that on the show before. The nice thing is, is that they just turned on all the health features. So it tells me how many steps I've gone in a day and how active I've been. It also uh, syncs all that information to HealthKit because I've told it it can. And uh, when I'm running uh, the Run 10K app, it notifies you when you need to start running and when you need to start walking again. And that's every few minutes uh, on the one I'm on right now. The problem with that is I'm usually listening to something while I'm running and I don't want it to interrupt me. So I found if I turn my screen off while I'm running, it actually just vibrates on my watch and tells me to run. (laughs) So uh, that's pretty nice. And then I 
I, I don't know what it is. I must have like abnormally large thumbs or something. But when I'm running with the Apple earpods in, my thumbs catch that cord at least two or three times while I'm running. Just yanks it right out. Out of my ears, out of the phone, out of both. Throw it halfway across the track. I mean, it sucks. So I also have some Aftershocks Blues 2 headphones. They are Bluetooth headphones. And they are bone conduction headphones, so they don't actually go over in my ear, which is kind of nice if I need to hear what's going on around me. But it's also just nice in general, just because I don't have that cord. So I'm going to pick that as well. Also, if you go out and read the literature on how to lose weight and how to get healthy, uh, the two big things that are going to make the most difference are actually if you're exercising sleep, but the main thing is your diet. And not just that you cut calories, but you're actually eating good food. And so I have some guidelines set up in my fitness pal and I've been using my fitness pal to track what I'm eating. And uh, that has been working really well as well. You can actually find me on Nike running and on my fitness pal. Uh, my username on my fitness pal is Woody two shoes. If you look me up and on uh, Nike running, I think it's CMaxW, which is my Twitter handle. So if you're interested in any of that, uh, you can definitely, I'd love to connect, see how, uh, how well you're doing in relation to how well I'm doing. But yeah, the, the only other health goal that I've set is that I'm going to go a year without caffeine. I'm about three days in and I'm dying. But uh, I think that gets easier. I've, I've quit for as long as three months before. And after a couple of months, then it's, you don't get the headaches and stuff. But uh, for right now, it's no fun. Anyway, uh, lots of long-winded picking, but uh, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, the main business goal is to increase the number of email subscribers. And I'll probably talk about that on a future show. So anyway, those are my picks. Good luck, Chuck. Yeah, thanks. Also, James, I uh, I remember way back when I when I joined Toastmasters, I took your challenge to get my competent communicator in a year. And I think I mentioned it on the show before, but I, I actually managed to do that. So Sweet. Yay. Congrats. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks, both of you, for being here. And we will catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.